welcome to the Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined once again by David Collin. David, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming back on. Ah, my pleasure. So here's where I want to start. It seems like we have reached consensus in mainstream media, most of the pundits that I hear, about what's going to happen in Europe this winter. And that thesis seems to be that there's going to be some kind of a breakup of the EU. Politicians are going to be forced to choose this winter between staying loyal to the West and the state and the sanctions or appeasing the immediate pain of their population, which is going to be hunger and, and heat and realigning with Russia. Um, whenever I see like general mainstream consensus so strong, I always have to wonder what am I missing here? Right. right. So when you hear that, what do you, what do you think? What do you say? Well, you know, I, I was just thinking the other day, about the concept of steel manning. And I realized that steel manning is really just taking the contrarian view um, in some sense. But then if you really believe it, then you're not steel manning anymore. Um, I just heard a German high ranking official say that, that they're gonna support Ukraine and, and they're gonna do it even though it's gonna hurt Germans. And I, it was so brazen, it almost sounded like it came out of Christia Freeland's mouth or something, right? It just, it just seemed that bad. Um, I always worry about dire projections because I've been making my whole life and they don't work out very often. So, so, it's, uh, so, so, so I, I, I realize I, I barely understand what happened. I, I'm clueless about what is happening and therefore I, I can't even guess about what will happen. With that said, your analysis seems like a good guess. And, and it seems like we're not only heading into a, 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 a uh, work, a, 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 a deglobalization-based stoppage, but we're doing everything imaginable to make it worse. And, and that's the part that baffles me, is that it just flat out has this feeling as though anything that could be done to make it better actually is being skipped and everything that could be done to make it worse is being done. And I, I, don't, I just heard, for example, yesterday, I think it was, um, that Zelensky and Putin had an agreement in April and they were about this sort of Inca deal and, and Boris Yeltsin shows up and said, don't even think about it. And that, so, so I am uh, super sympathetic to the Ukrainians. Um, I think the bad guys in this story are NATO and that will get me in trouble with a bunch of people. I got into a shouting match on a Twitter spaces with a guy who suggested that I was performing unnatural acts with Putin. I said, no, I'm a patriot. I'm questioning my government. And, uh, and so I, I, think, I think NATO could have stopped this war. Uh, I'm fairly confident of that based on everything I've read. And, uh, and NATO chose not to stop this war. And, and then the question is, uh, why, is why, why, why are they attempting to weaken Putin? What, what is it about weaken, weakening Putin? that represents a net game for the world. I, I, don't, I, I don't understand. It seems to me he's holding together a country with you know, you know, crazy glue and bailing twine. And, and it's, it's a country that couldn't be run by a weakling. And so uh, to no. me, Putin is kind of working with, under most dire circumstances to keep, to keep Russia going. And so everything we do, everything that goes wrong in the United States, we blame them. Um, I was optimistic when Trump said we had to learn to live with the, and work with the Russians. And then all of a sudden that story fell apart. So, um, so, so I, I blame NATO. I oppose NATO. That is that simple. 
You know, you make an interesting comment because Russia has always strengthened under authoritarian rule and always weakened under anybody more democratic leaning, right? In my my understanding of Russian history, do you think that's accurate? Uh, it might be. I mean, it it's kind of a tough love problem, right? Uh, it it. Oh. I would say our democracy is weakening pretty quickly here, and I think Canada's is weakening pretty quickly. And so it, it's hard it's hard to run a democracy under the best of circumstances, but I think Russia is just a mess. And so I think you need a certain amount of uh, well, it's eternal enormous, authoritarianism. It's yeah. an enormous country with a very challenging climate, right? Very little infrastructure given its size, sparsely populated, very tough country to manage. Very tough and heterogeneous and 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 you've got all sorts of social problems and and so uh so as far as i was concerned i went back when the ukraine war was starting to build up i started you know i was the guy who couldn't pick ukraine off a map right I, I, except if i remembered back said oh i came i played the game risk ukraine's right there i think um and and i started binge watching and reading about Ukraine. And one of the things I did is I went and basically watched every Putin speech and every Putin interview. Uh, I, I've always had this intrigue with Putin, what, what makes him tick. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, if you go back to pre-2022 where they're not trying to justify a war, um, you find out that there are Nazis running all over Ukraine. You find out that civil rights watch groups are all over Ukrainians, the way they're treating other Ukrainians. You find you find out it's a real disaster zone. The minute Russia decided to, to it had to move, and I believe it had to move. I I, I think it's a, you can make a pretty good case that Russia was presented with a storyline that said, "Look, if we don't move now, we're going to be in trouble," and so Putin moved, and uh, and. Uh, I, I then all of a sudden Ukraine as a government became this wonderful thing and Zelensky became this hero and 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 all was forgotten and and the the Nazis who go all the way back to World War II became freedom fighters and and the whole story changed and and, and the Western press did not let one shred of the other side of the story through. They they battled it the whole way, and so so and, and you want to know who are the bad guys or the guys censoring the story? That those are the bad guys. I believe period. that. Now, right. when you say that, you feel like Putin probably understood that he had to move in Ukraine. Is is that because you know Russia's security historically has been land, right? That's the reason right. Napoleon never made it to Moscow. It's the reason Hitler never made it to Moscow because of how much land. They had to cross. And as he's lost those borderlands, the distance between Russia's border and the capital has shrunk dramatically, making him far more vulnerable. Is that how you understand that? Well, there's there's actually several layers. I've been binging a lot of uh, Peter Zihan, um, who's a demographer, basically. He's ex Stratford, So I think he's got the goods. I actually hmm. asked um, a friend of mine who's who's probably the biggest China bear in the world. And that tell some people who he is. I said, is Zihan legitimate? And he said, yes, I think he's legitimate. So Zihan has been, has, looks at the world through a demographic lens and a deglobalization lens. And he, he paints an interesting picture that we're heading into a period of deglobalization and that the Bretton Woods Agreement was not just a monetary agreement, but it was also an agreement on the, on the part of the world that the United States would make the world a safe place. 
And what, by making it a safe place, by having a blue water Navy that could project anywhere in the world, you could have global trade. You could have shipping lines that were 8,000 miles long. You could have, you could depend on getting wheat from Ukraine. You could depend on getting oil from wherever. And that the minute that, that, that supply chains is shut down and just one sunken vessel could do it. So it's, it's a real fragile thing. Then, uh, then all of a sudden the whole, you know, uh, the whole globalization movement stops. And then I realized that uh, this idea that the United States is the policeman of the world, why, why that might've been important and, and how no one else can project that kind of power. And so, so in some sense, all of a sudden it makes sense, it makes sense to me a little bit, but every country in the world has a demographic problem. And most economists agree that de demography is, is a lot of the story. If you've got an aging population, you got a problem. Um, the US had what I consider to be four tailwinds for the last 40 years that made people think that we were just marvelous. But in fact, we had four tailwinds. One is um, the Russians were flooding the world with, with cheap, cheap, resources, as was everyone else, because the seas were safe. Um, Chinese were flooding the world with cheap labor. Uh, the US had a fantastic demographic story with the boomers coming, coming of age and working through their prime. And we had interest rates dropping from 16 to zero. And so we had capital getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And those four will be tough to replicate going forward. And Zihan definitely is a doomer. He says that the U.S. is positioned the best of all the countries in the world, but he certainly doesn't say there's going to be no pain here. Um, I just read this morning or yesterday that the price of energy in Europe, the consumer price of energy in Europe is up tenfold now in a matter of months. Yeah. Tenfold. So, so that means your heating bill for, let's say you run a small cafe or something goes from 3000 a month to 30,000. Yeah. You're done. You're yeah, finished. You're done. you're done. That's market. You're, you're, you're done as in like, you can't, you can't go another month yeah. done. Yeah. And this is following COVID. And therefore the guys who say, well, we're going to shut off Russia come hell or high water. They, they either are not seeing this or they somehow think this is a decent price to pay to stop a guy who, who has bombed far fewer countries and far fewer people than the United States has. Sure. I mean, the U.S., I, when I get mad, I, 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 I get mad at the sanctimonious people who think it's just crystal clear, Putin's bad, NATO's good, discussion over, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we, we have bombed a dozen countries in the last 20 years. We have killed over a million people. Russia's come nowhere near that. And somehow they're just blind to the fact that 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 may, statistically we're the bad guys. I'm not saying we're evil, but we are statistically the bad guys. And if they try to defend it, they say, well, you know, you know, such and such a company had weapons of mass destruction, whatever. I go, we don't get to bomb them because of that. The UK has weapons of mass destruction. We didn't bomb them. Right. We didn't bomb Russia. We didn't bomb anyone. They're all over the planet. You can't. So, so, so I like to ask myself, I said, uh, the 12, the seven countries that Obama bombed, who as a liberal Democrat, you would kind of hope would stop bombing countries, right? Didn't the liberal Democrats used to oppose war, as I recall, back in the 60s? Um, which of those seven countries attacked us? None. None. 
you say, oh, yeah, yeah, some, some guy from a cave in somewhere in Afghanistan hopped on a plane and brought down the Twin Towers. I go, that's not a country. And by the way, if you want to make it a country, it was Saudi Arabia that bombed us, that attacked us. So, so there's just nothing, nothing in defense of this idea that we're the good guys and, and Russia's the bad guys. That makes sense to me. Right, and yeah. it's the story's not being told. You got a list of guys like McGregor, John Mearsheimer, Scott Ritter seems to have been taken off the stage. Don't know what happened to him, but there's a small Steve Walt. There's a small group of policy wonks who seem to really get it, who seem to understand what the hell is happening. So you know, I'm yeah, and I agree with you. And we we tend to gravitate towards the simplest narrative possible, right? If we can make a right. story black and white, good versus bad, right versus wrong, it's like it's just easy to fall into that, right? And then and then you think you understand, right? Human beings, let alone countries and geopolitics, are always going to be way more nuanced, way more nuanced than that. So you mentioned a couple things. First of all, just as an aside, uh, Zihan, who who is Zihan? Because I've uh, uh, Peter Peter Zihan is an interesting character. He's kind of geeky. Um, he's got a sense of humor that could use some work, in my opinion. Huh. Um, but he's he's really brilliant. He's ex Stratfor. So for those who don't know Stratfor, Stratfor was to intelligence as Blackwater was to military action. So Stratfor yeah, yeah, yeah. was basically a private intelligence organization that would hire. I think they probably hired ex CIA guys and stuff, and then they did they black did. ops sort of intelligence. Yeah. Then yeah. then they got hacked. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was a member when they got hacked. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's and, right. And, yeah, yeah. and now tell me if I'm right. They they wrapped it up like an embassy in Iran, right? They 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 yeah. they, they said the whole thing just got wrapped up. It's like yeah. burn the place, burn the shred the papers, get the hell out of here. You know, take a hammer to the servers, get out. Right? It it stopped that quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, more or less. And well, Friedland sold it as well right after that, right? So who owns it though? Uh, well, it was it was claimed to be anonymous, like the organization anonymous. Well, except I knew about it and I even had exchanges with Friedman. So I, it wasn't, yeah. you know, if, if a chemist in Ithaca knows about it, it's not a great secret. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm with you. And this was before they got hacked. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had, I've had Friedman on the show and my God, the, my audience did not like what he had to say. It, it was, uh, I found him very pragmatic and I've been a Stratfor subscriber. Absolutely. And, and now uh, a geopolitical futures subscriber, his new firm, which is, I think, just as good. And uh, but oh, my God, did he offend my audience with his take on on uh, just the necessity of war, you know, and, and the realities of of some of the ugly realities of geopolitical power balances, um, which is to say, like a realist, in my opinion. I don't know. Well, he had this wisdom. One of the things he said um, is he, he said that that. Um, that don't underestimate any of the players. I've been on a bit of a crusade, first for my own thinking, and second of all, trying to tell other people they should ponder joining me, and that is to say, quit calling people stupid. So a great example of that is we, the Federal Reserve looks like they're stupid half the time, right? They really look like dumber than bricks some days. Um, now they're cornered. So I, there's, there's, there's no level of intellect that can get them out of the mess they've created for themselves. But um, one time Greenspan got asked um, are some, some, some pointed question and Greenspan said, do you really think you know something we don't know? And that gave me pause. I go, yeah, yeah, it's pretty stupid to think that, right? You, there's an arrogance to it. And I, I'm in a Zoom group that's actually mostly COVID, but there's an NSA guy there. 
And he says, at one point I asked him who the they is on it. We were having this debate about they do this, they do that. And I said, who's mm. they? Mm. Tell me a they. You know, is this Bill Gates? Is this George Soros? Is this the, the WEF? What the heck is they? And he said, I hate to put a name on it. He said, the reason I hate to put a name on it is because if I say, okay, you know, it, 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 this is originating from Bill Gates, then you get to say, okay, Bill Gates is evil. I can stop thinking now. Right. And okay. that's I've identified problem. the villain. Yeah. I've got a villain. I've narrowed it down. It's a bumper sticker size message, as you said, simplify right. black. It's like inflation, deflation, right? Say, so, yeah, we're going to have inflation or deflation. I go, dude, something this complicated cannot be described using one of two words. 100%. Yeah. And so, so anything that gets you to stop thinking, you should be leery of. And calling someone stupid. Now, I'm willing to claim that most of our politicians are flat out stupid, but I also don't think they're relevant. So I don't think they're doing anything uh, of relevance. Some, it, the messages are coming from other places, not from Maxine Waters, not from, not from, uh, not from any of those guys on TV. They're coming from somewhere else. Okay, a couple of threads so, I, want, I want to pull on there. First, I want to back up to demographic issues and get your thoughts and perspective on this because I'm trying to, right now, I'm trying to understand, David, the uh, implications of um, population crisis, right? Declining population. So for example, Japan right now, just there's an interesting stat. They just hit a point where they're selling more adult diapers than baby diapers. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting stat, though, isn't it? Like this is very That's amazing actually. about what's happening. And you know, you could find a similar trend in sales in a handful of countries. You know, what's what what are the consequences of of pop of a declining population? I won't say population collapse. I don't think we're there yet, but we're starting. You no, know, so, so let me back off on Zihan, who who by the way, I was talking to a friend of mine who who you would know by name, but I don't want to quote him on air. Um, who who said that who referred to Zihan's opinions as unhedged. And, and what he's really saying is he says, this is going to happen. And, and you go, is there no error bar on that projection? Are you, are you not? So I, I think he tends to believe too precisely um, what's going to happen. Whereas he, it's, it, it sounds like, so he, he, and he uses the word collapse. And I, I really oppose the word collapse because it has different meanings to different people. So as far as I'm concerned, um, a collapse means sort of to zero. Yeah. Right. If a building collapses, Dramatic. it's over. It's yeah. done. It's 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 gone. It's wiped out. And where where is decline or plummet or there's all sorts of adjectives that would be fine. But collapse to me is is 100 percent top to bottom feeling mm. to it. Mm. So when he says that so and so's population is going to collapse, it sounds like he's saying they're all going to die. Sure. And uh, and yeah. so I, I, I don't like that word. Um, but. Apparently, every country in the world is suffering from uh, sub-zero ZPG, sub-zero population growth. And so the numbers are like, you're supposed to have 2.1 kids on average to keep the population steady. Um, I find the demographic model to be in direct conflict with the idea that we're consuming too many resources, right? That's so, curious. I, there's an absurdity that's like, oh, we got to have more kids to suck all the oil out of the ground to keep the economy going, right? I, there's something absurd about that. Right. But yeah. 
Yeah. What I think the message is, is to, to get from, from a large productive population to a small and, and less productive population that has consequences. Or in other terms, um, when you have more people consuming and producing nothing, and you have less people now producing something, um, then either the people who are expecting to consume without producing are going to be disappointed, or the people who are the fewer people who are producing are going to have to work harder. Yeah. So that and makes sense to me. Neither like, group is, neither group is up to that task. Yeah. That, that makes like, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm like, if there's finite resources on this rock, aren't fewer people better for a sustainable world. And that makes logical sense. I suppose as long as the, the larger percentage of that population, whatever size is the productive component of it. But if you have that inverse situation where the, the bulk of the population, 60, 70% are the, you know, the aged out of the workforce population, that's when you end up in trouble. And I suppose that bridge is what we're entering into right now, where there's going to be a smaller population supporting a larger population. That's where things get sticky and tough, but I'm, I'm with you. It's like, I think it was Elon Musk recently interview said the biggest threat he sees right now is population collapse. And then, you know, it was one of these, like, we'll show you a 60 second clip of something. Somebody says, you don't get context, right? And you're like, okay, but why, right? Like, but why is that the biggest threat? Um, okay. Uh, now it's like saying the biggest threat that is the fed's going to raise rates too high. And I go, oh, no, the biggest threats already occurred. Right. The biggest threat is now baked in the cake. The, the the Fed can no longer make a grave mistake because there's no options left, right? That's like your 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 oncologist making a big mistake when you have stage four cancer. It's over, and so now that we've generated this massive and a massive debt bubble, in some sense, is just reiterating demographics. So it's a massive debt bubble when you owe all this money to all these old farts. That's sure. a debt bubble, right? Now. When you say that, you, you know, are you referring to the final innings of the American empire? Is that, is that, am I understanding correctly? Well, um, to the extent that empires come and go and, you know, when Rome collapsed, it didn't just collapse, right? You had the Eastern Roman empire that stayed with us. And, 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 and so, you know, there's people still running around wearing togas who look Roman. Sure. And, and Rome so is it, a lovely place. So to the word. And so this word collapse again, it, it's sort of when Rome started rotting, when Rome started decaying, but it took years for, for Rome. I, I, the guy, Joseph Tainter, who wrote The Collapse of Complex Societies, um, really talks about this. He talks about how when society simplifies, that's a problem. What do you mean? And so, well, so Rome had the spectacular infrastructure with you know, bathhouses and stuff. And, and a century or two later, people are using the, the, the tubs, the, the place where you used to bathe as to sleep. That's the simplified society. And when the cows are grazing in the Colosseum, yeah. it's just a grassy place to graze your goats or whatever, then society simplified. And so, so you go through this big simplification and, 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 and it's, painful but it's it if it's over two centuries no one knows you're they're collapsing that's right that's right the brits knew they were collapsing when the romans were yanked out of britain and left them without adult supervision 
that was immediate, I think. I think that was a, when they started pulling legions out of there and all of a sudden there was this group that had had overseers and then next thing you know, they had none. It becomes Lord of the Flies. Now, so that was quick. Maybe spec, you can maybe think about parallels occurring right now, right? Recently. That's right. America's pulled out and there's been somewhat anarchy in replacement. Right. And so I've been a big sort of Monroe Doctrine fan. But again, Zihan has made me think twice about it because the idea of all of a sudden saying, look, the entire season, everything are someone else's problem, I, that that could cause more damage than is necessary. And so we somehow have to stay in the game and do some graceful transition, which, for example, pulling out of Afghanistan was not. Sure. Right. That shows you what chaos can be. But again, I have vehemently argued that the Afghan pullout was an orchestrated disaster, not a not it was not screw ups. It was the military is not that stupid. The pullout was so bad that the military is not that stupid. They, they know how to pull out of a country better than that. Uh -huh. and so there, there's there's some reason why the pullout worked that way. And I've I've done a lot of podcasts on this and you know they, they they well yeah they left the weapons they left everything they they said they said oh the afghan army is gonna defend the country well we the afghan army was on payroll and the minute we pulled out we we cut off payroll so when you're not paying the army just ask any roman emperor about their praetorian guard if you didn't pay the praetorian guard your days were numbered and uh and so if you stop paying the afghan army they're going home and so the, the CIA, they, they had to know that it would play out exactly as it played out. Now, here's the interesting story I like to point out. Remember all the, uh, the Americans who were stranded, right? And Jen Psaki says, says, well, we got 90% of the people out who want to get out. And I'm going, that's not a good stat, right? 10% of the people is, are left behind. And so I thought it was going to be a Ron hostage crisis 2.0. Mm. I thought it was going to be a real disaster. It would linger and we'd be getting new... Have you heard, read any stories about horrific treatment of Americans in Afghanistan? I have not. I have not either. And I watch for this stuff because okay. I wrote a lot about the pullout being a crock. And so I, I think the thing was orchestrated. I think we handed the keys over to the Taliban, said, we, we're doing this. You do this. If, if you behave yourselves, we won't be back. The country's yours. But if you misbehave and you make and you embarrass us, we'll bring the bombers back. We'll deal with you. And so we, we literally left them pallets of money. And I think we said, don't make us regret doing this. And so the Taliban being those guys who George Friedman said, don't underestimate. They're smart. We're smart enough to know don't go killing Americans because Americans have very low tolerance for dead Americans. So in that sense, it would have, what you're speculating is that it was some kind of a negotiated withdrawal with oh, yes. and directly. Oh, right. yes. It had to be. I, I, a fifth grade class could piece together a better pull-out plan than they did. Sure. <laughs> Got it. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, what, what, why we did it so embarrassing looking, I don't know. Well, I that's the we thing. Could've... When you say don't embarrass us, and I think how that was covered by the media. Was well, I, I'm saying don't, not just don't embarrass us, don't, don't kill us. Don't, don't make us regret 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, there, there was something garish about it. And that gets back to the problem of everything we do seems to be embarrassing now. And I, I just don't, you know, so when you boycott Russian oil, my fifth grade class could also explain to the authorities why that's a bad idea, right? All you have to do is say, look, here are all the countries get oil from Russia. Should they boycott oil? Here's what happens in the dead of winter in Germany. Should we boycott oil, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and the answer is no. It's absurd. Now, I know you've studied Putin a lot, and you mentioned as much within this interview. I feel like he has a ton more leverage uh, that he's that he hasn't played in order to run some kind of a, a, a more unified Eurasia campaign over the next year or two. And I think so. Yeah, you think so. And so, yeah. you know, and, you know, and I think that expands to the South Pacific a little bit. Um, you know, one thing that was kind of fun about Donald Trump is he would often probably say the truth by accident on his within within his rants when he was going off about something. And one thing that he right. shared during a, a podium rant was, you know, U.S. has this stance that we'll protect Taiwan, you know, we'll do whatever it takes, uh -huh. you know, we're there, right? Trump said from the podium, China could invade Taiwan, and there's not a damn thing we could do about it. The country's 6,000 miles away, right? Which is probably pretty accurate in reality, right? So I guess, I guess. Say one thing, do another. So, you know, do you, if you were to game, like game out, what, what could occur through Europe in the next couple of years, David? You know, what are some of the big shifts you think could, could change? Now, as, again, as a reminder, I am learning in real time on all these topics, right? I, okay. I start as a chemist. I go into sort of markets and start paying attention to the Fed. Next thing I, I'm doing is podcasts on Ukraine, right? So this is dangerous territory here. This is just, this is just my opinion with, with a lot of reading. Um, so, so to explain Putin's actions, first of all, there are Nazis in Ukraine. Ukrainians in Ukraine appear to have been killing Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians who are getting killed were Russian national Ukrainians, basically. They were the ones who were Russians in every respect, except in which border inside they lived. And so that was posing a problem. Repeatedly over the last 15 years, Putin approached NATO and kept saying, and, and I just read a whole document that laid out all the promises we made to Putin as part of an agreement um, that we, we made to Russia, as part of an agreement when, when they agreed to not put up a fuss for Germany reuniting. And I didn't, had not made this connection, but when Germany reunited, Russia's looking at this going, hey, dude, you guys killed 20 million of my countrymen. This is not good. Right. And so apparently the West made all sorts of promises to Putin about what they would not do with respect to NATO and the various Baltic states and things like that. And then we reneged on every one of them. Sure. And so I think Ukraine is the crown jewel of NATO causing trouble and Putin for them, it's existential risk. Now, people say, ah, what do you mean? It's existential risk. I go, NATO exists to oppose Russia. So by definition, I think NATO does is existential risk. By definition, they don't have to be acting risky. But it's, it's just like the Russian warheads are existential risk for us, even if they're just sitting in silos right now. So for Putin, Putin can't have NATO have NATO get a hold of Ukraine officially. I think he tolerated NATO traipsing all over Ukraine for, for years. 
But I think, and this is the Dave interpretation, if Ukraine becomes a member of NATO, then all of a sudden Russia sets its foot on Ukraine, they trigger NATO alliances. Sure. It's one thing to have NATO say, we're going to back them. It's another thing to have alliances kick into gear, where we say, by charter, we have to fight Russia now. Yeah. And so I think Putin legitimately said, you can't have Ukraine. I think for them, it was an existential risk. I think we have a bunch of Cold Warriors who have somehow not noticed that the Cold War really did end. And it's not to say that Putin's not a tough guy. And there's all sorts of things you can bitch about him. But I can bitch about a lot of people. And, and I think they somehow think their job is to just bring down Russia's structure. Mm. It's a dangerous world we will live in if we manage to bring down Putin. It'll be a very dangerous world. And if they somehow think, oh, we're going to install our guy, then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, this looks like to me like a fantastic resource grab by the West. This, this smacks of the West saying, okay, we want Putin down because he stands between us and every natural resource that they've got. Yeah. Well, excuse me, we're guilty if that's the story. And I, I know that our goal is to try to get resources for ourselves, but, but, but in, in the grand scheme of things, we're guilty. Sure, sure. Right? I mean, if you have to be a cannibal, you'd be a cannibal, but it doesn't make you less of a cannibal. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Okay, all right. Now, at the, before I record, actually, we are talking about a conference that I run in Vancouver, British Columbia. We did it in May last year, the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And there was no shortage of chaos to discuss on stage at that event in May. It's coming back in January. Love you to make it if you can. Um, and we both said, you know, this January, there's going to be even more chaos to discuss. Like the moving parts uh, geopolitically are just insane and increasingly intense. Um, assuming that trajectory continues for this decade, right, the 2020s, talk to me a little bit about your portfolio, right? Let's get back to where the money's going. Um, how have you hedged yourself against unpredictable and unforeseen, but probably a crescendo of volatility that I expect for the remainder of this decade? Like, where's your wealth right now, David? Well, I've had a fairly traditional inflation hedging, bad event hedging portfolio with about 35% uh, precious metals, um, a lot of cash. And, and a smattering of other things. Um, my house is three times as expensive as it needs to be. And it was a lifestyle decision. I live right on a lake hanging off a cliff at scenic vistas, it's spectacular. But for a third the price, I could, I could live in the same, essentially the same house on a different lot. I see. And the decision was this, when I read an analysis by the Thornburg Group that said uh, houses pretty much track inflation. And so I said, okay, so I'm taking a, a lot of wealth and putting it into an inflation hedging, inflation tying um, asset. And that was fine. That was about six years ago. Okay. But I, it's, big, it's big enough I have to consider it part of my wealth because yeah, yeah. it's no longer, it's not just the place I live anymore. Um, and then, um, and that was all fine. And I'd done okay. I'd done spectacularly in my best decade ever relative to the world was in the decade starting in January 1st of 2000, where for the next 10 years, everyone got crushed, right? There were two big bear markets. Um, 
I compounded 13%. So, so things were going just peachy. Uh, then the next decade where the roid rage occurred and, and, and no, no hiccup went, came uncontested by central banks, which I just, just could not fathom. If you told me they were going to do it, I said, no, that, that just can't be true. John Law showed that doesn't work. Um, um, and they did it. They, they've dumped trillions and trillions and trillions into the system. So I, I have this great faith that, that that system will collapse. Now, right now, the inflation hedgers are not working very well. Um, starting 2020, which will look like good timing, but I sized it wrong because I'm too conservative. I started moving into energy, mostly because uh, when, when Exxon got kicked out of the Dow, and then Jesse Felder pointed out that energy had gone from 16% of the S&P to 2%. I said, okay, the, 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 uh, the, the one thing that rules the world is being underpriced here in a very big way. And so I went long energy, but I, I did it. I, I'm, the returns have been so good that I'm making decent money off it, but I, it's not a big percentage of my portfolio. But, but I'm waiting because I think if we do get a soul-crushing downturn that could take years. Um, I think energy investments will get cheaper too. And in fact, the ones I bought could end up underwater, even though they're up about 50% right now. Um, but during the, the teens, that decade, I, I, I did like 4% a year, right? That's a pathetic return for, for eh, compared to anyone who just parked in the S&P. I think the S&P crowd is going to give it all back. I think they're going to give almost all of it back. I mean, I really think I, I have a, uh, my, my skull has a uh, breaking 2000 price price point. And what I've been trying to figure out how to do is to buy, buy in 2008, I was too conservative to buy tons of cash, but I, I just felt like we're, it was 1931. It was not 1933. And then the, the central banks came in with horrifically large amounts of money. And I just said, dead, dead cap bows, they can't keep doing this. And they did. Now I think they're cornered. So now we've got this terrible inflation problem. And it's in the DNA. It's this thing, this thing's not going to go away easily, in my opinion. And now all of a sudden, the cash becomes critically. Now there's a clock ticking on the cash because it's getting gutted pretty badly. Um, the precious metals aren't yet responding. And my house, I'm sure, is going up, but it'll go down in net value, too. So there's, there's, there's all these things that right now are not working very well for a, a super inflationary world. But one thing that is true is I think we started the secular bear market that I thought was long, long overdue. And I, I think that has started because I think the Fed's cornered. And I think I think um, I think Powell can't pivot. I don't. I, and people say, no, he will. He's a coward. And I said, I, you know, the guy, the guy's thinking about his legacy. He's human being. He's worried. He's worried that he's going to look like the biggest asshole in Federal Reserve history. And so I think he's going to inflict pain. And his Jackson Hole speech, he said it. He told us, he said, it's going to inflict pain. I don't see how you don't take him seriously. So I think the, uh, the guys who did really well over the last 10 years are going to give a lot of it back. Well, I think you're right to uh, suggest that we should never underestimate hubris, right? When it comes right. to a Fed chair like Powell, you're right. He'll be looking at his peers' legacies and then thinking about his own, which, how does he want to be remembered down the road, right? His kids, grandkids, people think about that, right? It's very important to us, you know? Yes, yeah, so especially at his age and he's no longer looking to be reappointed. 
That's right. And he also is looking at an administration which is completely toothless. So it's not like it's not like he can go to the White House and have a rational discussion about how to proceed forward. Right. Right. There's no one driving. No one drive. I, I, I would say most of the European, most of the Western world is being run by guys who be hard to have a rational discussion with. I, I find them all uninspired. So there's very few real leaders. I, I agree with that. Yeah, they're. Yeah, I don't know how we get out of that cycle where we seem to have just fallen into this trap of politicians that only think in two and four year election cycles. And I understand right. thinking in terms of job security. Um, and, and maybe it's always been like that. I, I don't know. I don't feel like it has been, but, uh, you know. Well, but we've also never been this far in debt. We've never been this far up a tree, you know, up a creek, you know, whatever metaphor you want. So. Okay. One of the problems Powell faces, um, uh, uh, Volcker could could slay the inflation dragon um, without risking the system. I don't think Powell can. I think I think Powell's facing a profound risk of a completely systemic where the word collapse will apply. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think Powell, Powell's looking at a potential collapse, not just a bad downturn. And I got to remind investors, by the way, if the market drops 50% and you buy and then it ends up going down 90%, you just lost 80% of your money. It, it, it is a staggeringly, it is staggeringly important and difficult to find that bottom. Yeah. And the other thing is those four tailwinds that I talked about before. And if they, they don't repeat, the other thing that won't repeat is we've been getting V bounces for 40 years. For 40 years, 1987, 1991, 1994, put the full sails up and sail away. And I think those days might be over. A guy named Murray Stahl said that the era of monetary policy is over. Very impressive guy. Interesting. Look, David, this has been a blast. I'm glad I had you back on and we got caught up. I um, appreciate the conversation and I look forward to doing it again. Hopefully in, person, in January in Vancouver. That would be fun. Send me an email with the details and I'll check my calendar. All right. uh, yeah, it was fun. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.